Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, for the first episode in our 12 Days of Christmas essay series, we start where the history of the essay starts, with Montaigne. Most political philosophies sound hard, and not just difficult hard, hard to understand, but unpleasant hard, like something hard-edged, a stick to beat people with, which is often what they turn out to be. Conservatism, Marxism, existentialism, libertarianism. Ouch. But there's one philosophy that doesn't sound like that at all. I remember the first time I heard about it, I was a student, it was a lecture, I can't actually remember what the lecture was about. I think it was something to do with 17th century philosophy. But suddenly the lecturer started talking about something called quietism. And I thought, that sounds nice. The ism of leading a quiet life, quietism. Maybe that's the philosophy for me. It turned out quietism's a bit more complicated than that. And it can mean something quite technical in religion, in philosophy itself. But it does also basically mean a bit what it sounds like. The quietist is someone who doesn't believe that philosophy or thought can reorder the world, remake the world, change the world. The world is as it is. And the quietist can only order his or her thoughts and try and get in the right relation to the world. But that often involves stepping back from the world, accepting it. In that lecture, I think I remember the lecturer saying that quietism was the philosophy of both literally and metaphorically tending to your own garden. It did sound nice. But then it turns out that quietism is also a stick to beat people with. Not because the quietists are going to come and get you, they're not, that would be ridiculous, but because quietism is usually a kind of insult. Not always, but often when someone calls someone else a quietist, they're accusing them of something, of having given up, of having turned inwards. It's something self-indulgent. In the LRB's archive, and this is not an advert, but the London Review of Books does have an amazing online archive of all the essays written in the paper over the years, and you can look up anything and you will find something on anything. I searched for quietism, found maybe 50 articles that use that term, and some of them use it in a fairly gentle way to speak of someone or something as being a certain kind of peaceful response to a turbulent world. But in the vast majority of cases, it is a term of abuse. It is being used critically. These are just some of the words that go with quietism in those articles. Conservative, irritating, expedient, passive, complacent, narcissistic, indolent, creepy, dismaying, inert, cautious, embittered. Ouch. The person I'm talking about today, Montaigne, has sometimes been accused of quietism in some of these senses. Montaigne lived his adult life in the second half of the 16th century in France. It was a pretty terrible time to be alive. France, during the second half of the 16th century, was riven with civil war, civil wars of religion, of dynasty. And like all civil wars, they spill down into families, into neighbourhoods. The horror of civil war is not just the set-piece violence. It's the way that the violence leaks into everything, so that you never know when you're safe or who you can trust. Montaigne was an aristocrat. He came from a distinguished family. He was well known. He had an estate. 
And on that estate, he had a chateau. And in that chateau, he had a tower. And in that tower, he had a library. And in that library, he had a desk. And at that desk, he retreated to turn his thoughts inwards to reflect on himself. He famously said that his subject matter was himself. He was writing the book of himself. And it can look like a kind of retreat, a form of escapism, getting away from everything, looking inside, trying to make or hope that the worst of what's going on outside will leave you alone and go away, not trying to do anything about it. But it's unfair to think of Montaigne like that, to call him that kind of quietist. He wasn't. And it's also an accusation that's sometimes made against the form of writing that he's not just associated with, but he pretty much helped to invent the essay, which is going to be the subject of this series in the history of ideas. I'm going to be talking about 12 great essays in the history of political thinking, particularly starting with Montaigne. But essays and essayists are sometimes also thought of being a little bit self-indulgent, a little bit fanciful, a kind of turning away or turning inward, because essays are not manifestos. They are not attempts to set the world to rights and to tell everyone what to do. An essay is not and should not contain a single thesis. A thesis is something that has to be defended. Students are always defending their theses. It's their job. A thesis is something that you nail into the ground and then you try and see off all the people who are going to come and attack it. An essay is not like that. Montaigne's word for it was assay, which gives us the English word essay. Assay meaning a try, an attempt. An essay is trying out a thought. It's starting with a thought and seeing where it takes you. It's following a line of thought or a train of thought. And in that sense, it's a kind of journey or even an adventure. It can be much more adventurous than a manifesto or a thesis, which tend to be locked down. The essay is the open-ended form of writing, including political writing. It could go anywhere. And in that sense, it can be braver than the other kinds of political writing. It can certainly be more surprising. And that's how Montaigne wrote. You never knew where he was going or where he was going to end up. A lot of essays are short. That's part of the point of the essay. It can be very short. So it doesn't have to be a long journey. It can be from A to B. It doesn't even have to be A to B. It can be from A to A and a half. The essayist says, let's start here and let's just take a couple of paces over here to the left or a couple of paces over here to the right. And then let's have another look around and see how the world looks. It's not going to have changed. You can't change the world by just moving a few paces to the left or a few paces to the right. But the world can look completely different from just over there or just over there. And most of Montaigne's essays are like that. They're often quite short. They're about seemingly random subjects. They are a little train of thought. And they just shift your perspective. They have appealing titles, most of them. They draw you in. They sound like a kind of curiosity shop of random ideas. It's almost a sort of prose poem when you read them. There are many of them. Here's just a few. This is just a selection of Montaigne's essays. He wrote of fear of friendship, of cannibals, of sleep, of smells, of drunkenness, of books, of thumbs, of a monstrous child, of coaches, of vanity, of experience. He wrote about nothing and he wrote about everything. 
But the essay I want to talk about now is not like those. It's rather different. For a start, it is long, much longer than many essays. It's more like a book. It's book length, maybe 170 plus pages in translation. And it has a pretty off-putting title. It's not of thumbs. It's not of cannibals. It is called, in English, an apology for Raymond Sebon. Well, who the hell is Raymond Sebon and why does he need an apology? I think every reader has confronted that question when faced with this essay. It's long, it's book length, but it is still an essay. And the reason it's an essay is that it's a journey. I'm going to say in a little bit who Raymond Sebon was and talk about what happens on this journey. But the experience of reading this essay is like going on a much longer trip. To me, it felt like Montaigne was taking you into the woods, into the the darkness, probably his woods. He had woods on his estate. I mean, he's taking you somewhere he kind of knows, and he's telling you stories along the way. It is full of stories. It's almost nothing but stories, anecdotes, remembrances, asides, jokes about everything, food, sex, love, disease. He's taking you on this trip, and along the way, he's just telling you what he thinks, partly to keep your spirits up, partly to keep you walking. And you follow him. You don't know where you're going. I defy anyone reading this book to know where it's ending up. But you keep going because it's fun. He's an amazing companion. He's a great walking companion, a thought-walking companion. And then after a while, you suddenly realise you are deep in the woods and you have no idea where you are because he's taken you to a place you've never been to before and it is dark it's quite hard to know how to get out and you suspect that the only person who can lead you out is the person who led you in so who was Raymond Sebon why did he need an apology he's obscure to us because he is obscure he was a late 14th early 15th century Spanish theologian This is the the French version of his name. Montaigne was writing about him partly out of a labour of love because Montaigne's father, when he was dying, asked Montaigne to translate Raymond Sebon for him. Montaigne took very seriously the things that people said and wanted and did on their deathbeds because he knew that every journey, every thought journey, every actual journey, every lived life ends in the same place. So though we don't know where any of the journeys are going to end up, we sort of do. They all end in death. And what happens just before death was a subject of complete fascination for Montaigne. But in the case of his father, it was also the way he expressed the kind of love. He did the translation of Sebon. And Sebon was a somewhat controversial theologian. So he wasn't an essayist. He had a thesis. He had something he wanted to say. He wanted to tell people how to live. Particularly, he wanted to tell people how to do religion. And he basically just had two ideas. It's inevitably more complicated than this, but the great thing about Montaigne writing about it is he does not make it more complicated than this. Sebon believed that religion, true religion, and we're talking about Catholicism here, Montaigne was, in his own mind at least, a good Catholic. This is the true faith. Religion for Sebon required two things, and it needed both of them. It needed faith, and it also needed understanding of the world because God is written through the world, Sebon thought. You could see God, you could understand God through an understanding of the natural order. So religion needed faith, simply belief for the sake of belief. You might almost call it blind faith. And it also needed 
understanding. It needed to be bolstered by what we can see and what we can know, and it needed both. And this was treated at various points as, if not quite heretical, an extremely dangerous line of thought, a dangerous thesis. It's hard to reconstruct why it should seem so dangerous, but Montaigne makes it pretty clear in the way that he defends Sebon that what people find threatening about that line of thought is it's infuriating for the people who believe faith alone is enough, and it's infuriating for the people who believe that human understanding alone is enough. And what Montaigne does in this essay is he shows why simply relying on faith or simply relying on human understanding are inadequate, are dangerous. You need the two together. So what's wrong with faith? What's wrong with belief? For Montaigne, the trouble with religious faith as the basis for anything is that faith, he says, is so fickle. How do we know this? We just have to look around us. We just have to look at ourselves. We just have to look at our friends. We just have to read about the history of religion and human experience. And we can see that people will basically believe anything depending on circumstances. What do people believe? Well, it depends. It depends if you're German or French. It depends where you're born. It depends who you are. It depends upon your circumstances. But more than that, belief and faith is contingent on immediate impetus and impulse. Montaigne had very little time for atheism. He thought it was an absurd position. He thought it was grotesquely puffed up and inflated of any human being to think that they could know the absence of God. Who are we to judge God? And he deployed an argument that is often used against atheism, which is human beings can construct all sorts of clever, clever arguments to prove the non-existence of God. And then when those same human beings find themselves at death's door, suddenly faith will burst out in them. So the 20th century version of this argument is the line that I think originates in the Second World War in the United States. There are no atheists in foxholes. When you think you might die in the next moment, you will pray. You will find someone or something to pray to. You will not hold on to your logical beliefs in the non-existence of God. And Montaigne thought that that was absolutely borne out by experience. As death approaches, people will start to believe. But what's so extraordinary about Montaigne is he uses that same argument against atheism and he turns it against faith. So there are no atheists in foxholes for Montaigne isn't just against atheism. It's also why you can't rely on belief to found religion because it's so dependent on circumstances. If faith is the kind of thing that can just be conjured up because someone is trying to kill you, it doesn't really mean anything. And it doesn't even have to be fear of death. Montaigne spends a lot of time talking about disease and illness and pain. He writes quite a lot about gout, presumably from experience. And he says that when you are suffering from gout, you will basically believe anything. Philosophers can have the most elaborate, sophisticated and well-founded thesis, credo, manifesto, come the gout and they'll be gibbering like the rest of us. All they want is for the pain to stop. If pain can generate faith, then faith is not a basis for anything. 
And incidentally, that's one of the reasons why Montaigne was adamantly opposed to torture, commonly used in the 16th century to get people to say and indeed believe what you wanted them to believe. So it's not just that under torture people will say anything, they will believe anything. You can get people to confess to crimes they haven't committed and believe they committed those crimes just to get the pain to stop. And as Montaigne says, what on earth is the point of that? What is the value of that kind of faith? Faith isn't enough. Reason, human understanding, experience, book reading, knowledge of the world, looking into ourselves, being honest with ourselves about what we believe when we're suffering. It'll teach us all that. So it sounds like Montaigne is making an argument from human experience and human understanding, and he wants to justify the true religion. So why doesn't he go down the other route and say that if we're looking for God, we need to base our understanding of God not on something as fickle as faith, but on something as grounded as our knowledge of the world and find God out there in the world, in the order of things. Montaigne spends the bulk of this essay arguing against that position because he thinks, and indeed I think he thinks looking into himself, he knows that human beings who construct a view of the world on the basis of their own reason and their own understanding are almost always bigging their own part up, inflating that reason and understanding. It's usually a kind of vanity project. Who on earth are we, humans, to think that we can understand God. You can't do it through faith, but you also can't do it through reason, because reason on its own is a kind of vanity. One of the phrases from classical literature that Montaigne constantly rails against is the idea that man is the measure of things, of all things, that we can understand the world through ourselves and our own experiences. And Montaigne says this is absurd. Just look at us. Just look at who we are. We understand almost nothing. We're people who will believe anything if we have an attack of gout. And that includes the philosophers. That includes Plato or Socrates with the gout. The idea that creatures like us are capable of knowing God is ridiculous. What we should know is the profound limits of our own ability to reason clearly and coherently. We are constantly being knocked off course. The position that Montaigne adopts is sometimes associated with another ism, which is scepticism. And Montaigne is often, more often than being described as a quietist, he's described as a kind of sceptic. He writes quite a lot about scepticism, but he's wary of scepticism too. He's wary of all of it. He's basically wary of all the isms, even the ism of doubt, even the ism that says human beings don't know what they're talking about, because it can become dogmatic. Any position can become dogmatic. Atheism can be dogmatic. Faith can be dogmatic. Scepticism can be dogmatic. There is a particular kind of scepticism and just one kind that Montaigne approves of and indeed tries to adopt. It's called Peronian scepticism. It comes from classical thought. And the way Montaigne understands it is it's not the scepticism that establishes that we can doubt anything and looks for grounds of certainty, not the kind of scepticism that was later associated with his compatriot Descartes, try to doubt in such a hard way that in the end you can find a solid foundation for a belief in God. For Montaigne, that's just human ridiculousness. 
He likes the kind of scepticism where you keep asking questions. How do you know? How can you be sure? Are you sure? Aren't you just saying that? You would say that, wouldn't you? In order to provoke another statement and another question. It's the scepticism of a conversation, which is a kind of journey. And that's how Montaigne constructs it. This is his own language. You keep asking doubting questions to keep the conversation moving so that you're never fixed in one place. The danger with any scheme of belief is getting stuck and any scheme of belief can leave you stuck in place. And it is human nature, and we can know this from our own experience, that once we've adopted a particular line of thought, once we have our thesis established, we will defend it at all costs, partly because we are all vain creatures. It's what we do, it's what makes us human. For Montaigne, the only worthwhile scepticism is the one that keeps you walking, keeps you moving, keeps the line of thought going. The only place that a train of thought can actually end is death. Otherwise, it should never stand still. One of the ways that Montaigne makes this argument is to try and establish all the ways in which to be human is to be part of the natural order. And we happen to be part of this natural order. So one of the astonishing things that Montaigne says in this essay is it's, it's human vanity to think that the universe that we happen to find ourselves in, this one, is the only universe. It seems very unlikely that there's just one universe. God, after all, could make endless universes. There may well be, Montaigne says, multiple different universes. This is just one among many, and it happens to be the one that we're in. How dare we assume that we're the ones who can understand universal truths simply from the basis of the one that we happen to be in. And he says, look where we are in the universe. We're at the shitty end. That's how he calls it. He says, to be human is to be mired in shit. He spends a lot of time talking about the most basic form of human experience, experience through the body. We're mired in shit. And he says, we're at the squalid end of the universe. We are down here on the ground. We're not up in the sky. We're not in the heavens. We're on the ground with the animals. That's who we are. Part of his argument in his apology for Raymond Sebon is the way to think about the human experience is always to remember not only we are part of the natural world, but we are just animals. Part of the way he makes that case is to remind us of all the ways in which we are animalistic, which is why he writes about sex and food. But he also does it by spending a lot of time writing about animals themselves. So part of the charm of this essay and part of its discursive quality is it goes down these endless detours, stories that Montaigne remembers about animals he has heard of or read about in classical literature who are way smarter than you might think possible. Dogs that put on plays and act all the different parts. Elephants. Montaigne says that human beings think they're better than elephants, but we're not. Elephants, he says, have religion just like we do, not the true religion. Montaigne, I don't think, believes that elephants are good Catholics. But elephants have ritual. Elephants seem to relate to each other in ways that show that they value certain kinds of symbolic behaviour. I'm not 100% sure what he means when he says elephants have religion, but he seems to believe it. We think we're better than them but they have religion, we have religion. What's the difference between us and them? Well, we fight wars and try to kill each other, and they don't. Elephants don't fight wars, and we do. 
elephants do have religion. So how on earth can we think we're better than elephants? And Montaigne knows that one response to that, to that sort of doubt, is to say, yeah, but we still tell the elephants what to do. So you might say elephants don't fight wars, but they do fight wars. They fight in our wars. Hannibal led the elephants over the mountains. The elephants served Hannibal. Hannibal didn't serve the elephants. Elephants never organise us. We organise them. Surely in the hierarchy of nature, we are above them. And Montaigne just says, no, we're not. And part of the evidence that he gives for this, and it's based, again, on personal experience, he says, look at the way people treat horses. He knows many people who treat horses in a way that makes it feel like they would do anything for their horses. If you look at the way they behave around their horses, they seem to love them, but also they seem to serve them. They are at their beck and call. They're the ones, the humans are the ones who are getting up early to clean out the horses. The horses aren't getting up early to clean out the humans. But worse than that, people who say we're human, we somehow stand above the natural world, not only treat horses as though the horses were in charge. They mistreat humans for the sake of the horses. So Montaigne says, look at the way a wealthy man looks after his horses, and then look at the way he treats his stable boys, and then tell me that he values the human over the animal. As Montaigne said, we think we're playing with our cats. How do we know our cats aren't playing with us? What's the political lesson of all of this? How should we live? Montaigne is sometimes treated as a kind of self-help writer, that this way of thinking should be a guide to how we should behave in particular circumstances. And he is a little bit like that, but it's not really self-help, because he never wants to pin things down to that extent. So this is not the kind of self-help that tells you this is what you should do this is how you should kind of cement your well-being. This is not a well-being manual. At one point, Montaigne says, if you're healthy, don't go on a diet. Because health is random. I mean, you're healthy not because of any virtue of your own. It's just chance. You're a lucky person. Enjoy your luck. One of the themes of Montaigne's writing is enjoy your luck. When things are going well, don't make them go worse for you in order to hold on to the fact that they're going well because you can't control it in the end. You can diet all you like. You're not going to be in charge of your own body. If you're healthy, enjoy it. Only diet for a reason. I guess it's a kind of self-help, but it's much more contingent than these are the eight rules for living. But weirdly, it is a kind of guide to politics. It's not explicit. It's not explicit in this essay. It's not really explicit in Montaigne's writings. He does write quite a lot about politics. And of course, he writes about and recognises the chaos that's going on around him. The backdrop of civil violence informs a lot of Montaigne's writing, which is one of the reasons why it's ridiculous to accuse him of just sort of turning inward. But there is an implicit temperamental assumption about how you should adjust yourself to the kind of world that Montaigne finds himself living in. So he's living in a world of passion, passionate argument, millenarian argument. Politics has become about damnation and salvation. People are willing to kill. People are willing to die for the sake of their beliefs. 
tribes are formed around doctrines and ideas and manifestos and faith and reason. And these tribes are entrenched. And as Montaigne says, once people believe something, they will do anything to reinforce that belief. But they're not in control of the belief. The belief is in control of them. One of the great fallacies, Montaigne thinks, in politics is believing that if you get the right argument, you can control the situation, that a good argument will give you a kind of mastery of the contingency in which you find yourself. The opposite, he thinks, is true. You don't control the argument. The argument controls you. You end up behaving in ways that allow you to defend that, whether or not you still believe in it. But also, Montaigne says, just look at the way people do actually position themselves in relation to these all-or-nothing salvation or damnation beliefs. He says... Look at what people believe this year and then look at what they believed last year and then imagine what they will believe next year. He doesn't quite say, imagine them with gout. But the implication is, none of this is fixed. All of it is fickle. Millenarian politics is as fickle as anything. All or nothing politics doesn't fix anything. What's the advice? Don't get caught up in enthusiasms. At least remember that the most enthusiastic, dogmatic people are often also the most fickle. Don't believe that all-or-nothing arguments can be settled in all-or-nothing terms. Remember that this too will probably pass. So one of the things that Montaigne says that turned out to be true in the midst of these terrible civil wars that seem to threaten to destroy everything, not just to destroy France but to destroy the possibility of human life, decent human life. Everything seemed to be at stake, and at various points, catastrophe seemed around the corner. Montaigne says, will it look like that in 100 years? Will it look like that in 200 years? Some of this will subside. No human beings can sustain this level of intensity forever. And these arguments, eventually, over time, won't look so all or nothing. Indeed, there will come a point, looking back, where it will be hard to reconstruct just why people thought that they should kill and die for these beliefs. When you're in the middle of them, it's almost impossible to remember that it might not be all about this. But when you have sufficient distance from any doctrinal conflict, from any political violence, you can ask the question, did they really think it mattered that much? And if you can remember the possibility of that future perspective in the middle of the conflict, it will be a kind of guide. And though this is not a self-help book, it does feel a bit like a kind of guide in the age of Twitter. It does feel like a guide at a time we're not in the middle of civil war, not even in the United States, but when political passions run so high. But the things that people believed two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, are not necessarily what they believe today. And the all or nothing willingness to defend a person, a creed, a set of beliefs, does look more fickle if you can just take one step back. But it also, of course, means taking one step back from your own involvement in this. So it is a kind of suggestion that full immersive involvement in millenarian politics is dangerous, but also not just bad for you, but potentially bad for everyone. It's where the accusation of quietism maybe comes in. 
the term that was applied to Montaigne, the thing that he was described as sometimes, and again, accused of sometimes in the language of late 16th century France, was of being a politique. That was the term that was used. He was one of the politiques, which doesn't really mean politician. It's more like politico or something like that. The politiques were the people who were sceptical. So scepticism is one of the ideas associated with them, deeply influenced by classical thought. And one of the reasons that the Apology for Raymond Sebon, which sets out as being about Christian theology, has almost nothing to say about Christian theology and draws almost all of its examples from classical thought, from the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, is, as Montaigne says explicitly in the essay, why am I writing about the ancients? Why am I defending the true religion using the writings of people who did not know God because they did not know Jesus, pre-revelation pagans, because it's safer? He says, look at all the chaos and misery and bloodshed that comes from getting involved in the arguments now about what it is to believe and what the true religion is. And then ask yourself, if you want to really go on an intellectual journey, if you really want to explore, if you really want to follow your thoughts wherever they lead you, would you do it through biblical references? Would you do it by taking a position on Catholic or Protestant or doctrinal questions? Of course you couldn't. There would be no freedom in that because you would constantly be constrained by the fear that stepping two paces this way or two paces that way will lead to death. But if you write about Plato, if you write about Pythagoras, if you write about Protagoras, if you write about any of them, you're free because you've always got the line of defense, well, they didn't know any better because they didn't know Jesus. That's why he does it. It's one of the weirdnesses about this essay. It's not actually about Christian theology at all because it's too dangerous. The defense is a defense of a view of what it means to be human in language that can only be taken from the ancients because that's the only place where it's safe to follow your thoughts where they'll lead you. It's why for some people this essay feels irreligious, verging on atheistic. It's not. But what it is is free. It's a free line of thought. So the politiques drew heavily on ancient scepticism, but what they were associated with was not getting swept up in the all-or-nothing arguments, in the, the death traps of late 16th century theological politics. They were the pragmatists. They were the ones who tried to make politics organised around principles of safety and security or even reason of state trying to keep a kind of order amidst the chaos. And for that reason, to be a politique tended to be to be accused of one of two things. There are two reasons in an age like that to be suspicious of the people who do a kind of pragmatic politico-politics. One is the accusation that such people believe and do nothing. These people are empty. They're not signed up to any of the great faiths, the great doctrines. They're not pro or anti-anything. Because they're pragmatists, in the end, they're know-nothings and do-nothings. They are the people who have given up, who have walked away from the great salvation existential struggles of their time. They are just messing around in the shallows of politics, doing too little. The other charge against the politique is that they do too much because they'll do anything. So if they won't do nothing, they'll do anything because they do not have a foundational set of beliefs, because they are the ones who will accommodate and adjust, because they are the pragmatists. You can't trust them 
in the way that you can't trust politicians who seem to chop and change, the politicians who seem like all they're trying to do is get to a centre ground where a certain kind of stability can be found. Those people are often accused of being amoral or even immoral because they don't have a fixed manifesto-like moral framework to organise them. And they're not playing for high enough stakes. When the stakes are high, when the fate of the world is in the balance, why would you listen to people who think that politics is just about the small choices? You can't trust those people not to do something terrible. And Montaigne was sometimes thought of in these terms because he didn't live a life of retreat. He wasn't some kind of monastic abstainer from politics. He lived a political life. He was, among other things, mayor of Bordeaux. He didn't run away from that role, though I think probably he would preferred to have spent more time in his library. But he did it when he was asked to do it. And the Montaigne view is not that to do politics in this way is either to do nothing or to do anything, to be unanchored from high stakes. The Montaigne view is that to do politics in this way is to do something. And the most that you can do is something in the knowledge that the most heated arguments are probably overheated, that what seems like an all or nothing choice probably isn't an all or nothing choice that some of these arguments will pass and they will pass so quickly it'll be hard to reconstruct why people cared so much as to kill each other over these choices. With all of that knowledge in the background, the most you can do is not anything, but something. In Sarah Bakewell's great book about Montaigne and the life lessons that he teaches, she says that one of his lessons drawn from his experience of being mayor of Bordeaux is that you should do a good job. If you're asked to do a job like that, you should do it well. Do a good job, but not too good a job. Do it well, but not to the best of your ability. Do it well enough. Because if you do too good a job, if you show yourself to be a really great mayor of Bordeaux, you will be drawn up to the next level. And there will come a point you'll be drawn up to a level of high court politics where it's impossible to avoid the high stakes, where the risks are too great, where that ability to take a step back and just to measure your response, that space shrinks and shrinks until it vanishes. If you are the kind of politician who seems appealing to the people next up the ladder, they will keep moving you up until you find yourself in a position where you can't step away. You can't retreat. You've lost not just your freedom of thought, but your freedom of manoeuvre. A good job, but not too good a job. But so much of that, as Montaigne knew and as he writes in the Apology for Raymond Sebon and across his writings, so much of it is luck. And luck in politics is one of the themes that dominates Montaigne's understanding of what it is to live in the world. You have to be alive to all of the ways in which the choices that you make are going to be shaped by things that you cannot control, some of which at least will simply be questions of chance. So a lot of his preoccupation with luck was with physical luck, the luck of good health, the difference between a healthy life and an unhealthy life, particularly then, when death was always just round the corner. That was the all or nothing. You never knew when you might die. This was the age of plague. 
some of Montaigne's greatest friends were just taken from one day to the next by the plague, but he wasn't. And because he wasn't, he was able to reflect and to write the essays and to lead a full life. And he knew you couldn't read anything more into that than chance. Montaigne's younger brother was killed by a tennis ball. It hit him on the head, playing a game of tennis, and a few hours later he was dead. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Presumably, no one knew or understood the way that worked, but anyone could understand that if you can be killed by a tennis ball in an age of civil war, you can't just worry about the civil war. Anything could get you. Health is chance. Life and death are chance. How you deal with that kind of chance, this is a thought written all the way through the classical view of the world, how you deal with that chance, including the chance of random death, tells you a lot about an individual's human's character. And Montaigne does judge people in part by their willingness to embrace a certain kind of randomness and to live with it. But you have to accept that your ability to find a place in the world that is relatively safe, not too much, not too little, the Goldilocks place where you can be in the world, you can do politics. And he was apparently a good mayor of Bordeaux. He was charitable. He was kind. He was known for being someone who really detested torture and cruelty. But as Montaigne says of himself, there's no virtue in that. The people who said of Montaigne, he's a really good person, because even though he has power, he doesn't abuse it to cause harm to his enemies. Montaigne said of himself, it's just chance. There's nothing virtuous in it. I can't claim this makes me a good person. I just happen to be really squeamish. I hate seeing human suffering. Does that make me good? No. It just makes me someone who happens to have been born with those qualities. He could have been born with different qualities. He could have been born with an impulse towards sadism. He didn't control either of these two things. He can't claim that as his great virtue. There is luck all the way through this. But there's also a kind of luck that Montaigne doesn't write about so much. But you can't avoid it when you read him. He's so fresh he feels so present there on his estate, in his chateau, up the tower, in the library, shut off, but speaking to us across the centuries. I think everyone, or almost everyone, who reads Montaigne is taken aback, not just by how conversational it is, but the way in which it does feel like he's talking to the reader, and the reader is you. You really feel like you are there with him on that journey. But there's real social luck behind that. It's not just that Montaigne was lucky enough to be healthy, not to die of the plague. He was lucky to be a man. I mean, that's biological luck, but it's also a kind of social luck in a society where to be a man was to have the opportunity to lead the kind of life he led with some public roles, but also with the privilege and the privacy of the tower and the library and the desk. It's very hard to imagine, not impossible, but very hard to imagine that life being led by a woman. But more than that, he was well off. He had his estate and his castle and all the rest. He had his books. He was extraordinarily socially fortunate in an age where almost no one had what he had. And you had to have what he had to lead the life he led, that life of intellectual exploration to go on that journey. And the least appealing part of Montaigne, and it's there in the Apology for Raymond Sobon, 
are the points where he tries to say it's kind of miserable being rich and smart, partly because you're going to get drawn into politics and you're going to get sucked into these arguments that you don't want to be a part of, but partly because it's miserable when we're just all animals, really, to be given these kind of puffed up human choices, to be one of those human beings who's expected to somehow live in the world as though we were masters of our own destiny, as though we were capable of shaping not just our own lives, but the world around us. To be one of those people is a recipe for misery. It's much better, Montaigne says, to be one of the simple people. And he says it over and over again. Better to be a peasant. Better to be a washerwoman. Better to be a ploughman. Better not to have those choices, those intellectual choices. Better to be fixed in place in an age where most people, the vast majority of people, were born, lived and died within 10 miles of the same spot. Better not to go on these journeys because it's a happier life. It's a simpler life. You will not be tortured by human vanity if your space is so determined for you that there is no scope for thinking that you might rise above it. Montaigne says over and over again, the great failing of human beings and human nature is our impulse to think we can rise above being human. We should be suspicious of all schemes that say there's a way of being human and something more than human. When I was reading this, the thing it made me think about was AI. Montaigne is not talking about this at all, but when he's writing about animals and the way that human beings think they're in charge of animals but actually are doing their bidding, I thought of intelligent machines. And I also thought of all those schemes from Bitcoin up or down, where people say there's a kind of human creativity and ingenuity that allows us to emancipate ourselves from the fickleness of the human condition. And Montaigne says none of those schemes will work because they will either be inhuman, and who wants that, or they will be all too human, and then they won't have freed us from anything. Montaigne knew all of this, and for that reason, he thought the best way not to be tempted to rise above the basic human condition was to live a human life where that option was removed from you. He says at one point, better to be a plowman than a university rector because all the plowmen he's known have been much happier people. So I've known a few university rectors, people who run universities, and it's true some of them have seemed fairly miserable. I don't think it's much of a fun job, though some of them have absolutely loved it but better to be a plowman. There are two things about that that just don't feel right. And when Montaigne says it, it doesn't come across. The first is that the point of his way of writing and his way of telling stories is that they are a journey, an open-ended journey. And here he is saying, better not to take a step at all, better to be fixed in place. He writes about the world that makes you believe that the best thing you can do is just keep moving, not moving in a way because you're trying to find the holy grail, the spot that you can finally rest where everything will be all right. There is no spot. It ends in death. But if you keep moving, the world will keep looking a bit different, and that will remind you who you are. You will place yourself in the world better if you do not fix yourself in place. You will have a better relationship to the world and the people around you. And yet here he is saying... Better not to make the journey at all. I don't believe it. And also you have to ask the question, he says that, but would he swap? Would he really swap? If you could say to Montaigne, you can have this life again without the chateau, without the tower, 
without the library, without the desk, without the essays. The nice, simple life of the washerwoman, of the ploughman. Would he swap? Would he give up the journey? Would he give up the experience of having walked through the woods and seen all the amazing things that are out there and heard all of the stories and been troubled by them? Would he give up his good fortune? Who knows, but I doubt it. And when you read this essay, The Apology for Raymond Sebon, and it's late on in the essay that he starts to say, better the simple life than all of this complexity, better the simple life than the philosophers. Philosophers, he says, are terrible at knowing where they are. Philosophers never understand their neighbours because their heads are in the clouds and they're always looking up and they should be looking around them. This is true. But does that mean that therefore the philosophers want to swap places? Or is there a better way, a different way of being a philosopher? As you go on this journey with him and you find yourself deep in the woods and then he says to you, better not to have come with me at all. Better to have been back out there. It's dangerous in these woods. You don't know who you are or where you are. It's really disorientating. Let's go back. Let's pretend that we never went on this journey. It's impossible because by that point, you've gone far too far with him to go back. So it's not as though Montaigne is saying that this journey that he's taken you on through animal life and sex and shit and religion and Plato and God and multiple universes, all of that, it's not like he's saying that journey is life, that that's the world, because it's not the world. It's happening inside his head and you're walking through the woods. It's not that. The woods are not the world. But he's taken you there and once you've been there, it's almost impossible to forget the journey. You can get out again, but you will not be unchanged by having walked through those woods. And the thing that you will take away from it is not that you should retreat from the world. And it's not that you should embrace the world. And it's not that you can put the world to rights because you probably can't. What you take away from reading that essay is simply that it was the most extraordinary trip. To find out more about this podcast, please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. Tomorrow, the second day for the 12 days of Christmas, it's David Hume. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. <laughs>